I'm Timothy. I teach and write about apologetics, and I never watch a movie a second time unless it involves superheroes, wizards, or space travel. And I'm Garrick, and I have a strong aversion to V-neck t-shirts. Well, according to best-selling religious scholar Riza Aslan, the New Testament Gospels are not, nor were they ever meant to be, historical documentation of Jesus' life. The Gospels are, Aslan claims, fictional productions from early Christians who reimagined a crucified zealot named Jesus as a celestial Christ of faith. And it's true that the New Testament Gospels are not exactly like the formal biographies written by Roman historians like Suetonius or Plutarch. But what are the New Testament Gospels? What genre are these texts? Well, that's the question that we'll be exploring today with New Testament scholar Dr. Jonathan Pennington. In the second half of the program, we'll be looking for truth in a song by USA for Africa entitled, We Are the World. To learn more about how to defend the Bible as the Word of God, take a look at the book, In Defense of the Bible, edited by Stephen Cowan and Terry Wilder from our friends at BH Academic. Check out In Defense of the Bible at bhacademic.com. Welcome to Three Chords and the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. I'm Timothy Paul Jones. Each week, my co-host Garrick Bailey and I tackle an issue related to apologetics. Then we go looking for God's truth by reviewing a moment from the history of rock and roll. Thank you for joining us today on Three Chords and the Truth, where we defend the faith, do justice, and dig for truth in rock and roll. I'm Garrick Bailey, and our guest today is Dr. Jonathan Pennington. Dr. Pennington received his Ph.D. at the University of St. Andrews and now teaches New Testament interpretation at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Welcome to today's podcast, Dr. Pennington. Hey, thanks. Great to be here. I have a question for you. We'll start with this. If you could only choose one rock band in the history of rock, which you could join and play in, which band would it be? Wow, only one. I guess I'll just go with Pink Floyd. But there were a lot of other good choices, too. <laughs> Sticks was a big impact on Love me. Love Sticks. Yeah. Love Sticks. REO Speedwagon, Super oh, Tramp. Yes. Those are all, that was my childhood. My wife and I got married because of REO Speedwagon. So I had never heard this story. Okay. driving back from thinking about breaking up and the song came on by ario speedwagon can't fight this feeling anymore wow and uh, convinced me so that was actually it so every time that song comes on the radio i tell our kids our family is here because of this song just remember that ario speedwagon did this good to know good to know and that's like low end of good ario speedwagon that's that's the problem that's right but that's okay It's only up from there. If we're getting into this conversation about what are the Gospels, let me start with this question, Dr. Pennington. What do we mean when we talk about the genre of a particular piece of literature? Yeah, that's great. That's a really important idea that scholars have helped us think about, the fact that the reality is that different types of literature 
are like a different kind of greeting or a different kind of relationship between an author and a reader. And, you know, there's lots of examples we use when we talk about this, but like when you read the Wall Street Journal, you have an expectation about what kind of information you're going to get out of that as opposed to reading the weekly world news or something that says, you know, President Trump has just met with aliens at the White House or something. Genre creates an expectation between authors and readers, and that helps readers figure out what they should get from the kind of literature they're reading. For the most part, it's never conscious on the reader's part. It's very much a culturally embedded thing so that people just get used to experiencing probably from childhood a certain kind of literature. If it begins with once upon a time, then you expect it to you know, not say, and the weather report was this or something, right? So genre just creates a, a helpful expectation. So why does the genre of books in the Bible really even matter? I mean, they're all inspired by the Holy Spirit. They're all inerrant. They're all true. So there aren't they Holy Spirit genre? Aren't they just all the same? And we can read all these books the same because they're true and they're inspired by the same God for the same church by the same spirit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I mean, I, I think, you know, I'd answer that at two levels. At the one level, I think you can faithfully and devotionally and rightly, and in the best way, read the Bible knowing nothing about these kind of things, right? I mean, you don't have to be an expert in literary theory or even genre analysis to read any part of the Bible and hear from God and worship God through it. So at one level, you don't. But if you want to be the best and wisest kind of reader that is kind of digging into how the texts are communicating, what God's trying to say, the wisest way to go forward is to understand how a particular piece of literature is working. And common examples we might use is the difference between reading the book of Proverbs and reading Deuteronomy and reading the Psalms and reading the Gospels or reading Revelation. Mm -hmm. They all function in different ways. They use language in more or less poetic ways. And so that's pretty important to understand if you want to really dig in and be a student of the Bible in any kind of real sense. Yeah, and I think one of the things that we need to be aware of as pastors is that we need to help our people to be able to identify it so that they know what to expect, not just from the Word of God, but from their own lives. I can think of so many times I've worked through with parents who are feeling this burden of guilt because they read the verse in Proverbs, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. They read that not as a proverb, which is an observation of the way that life usually works, They read that as a promise, and they're thinking, where did I fail? Because my child has gone astray. I did not train them up in the right way. If I had, they would have turned out fine. And you've got these parents living into that. That's a genre issue. That's a genre issue. In other words, they're having an incredible burden of guilt over an issue of genre in the Bible. And Mm -hmm. so that's the reason I I ask that. I want us to make sure and wrestle with the fact that, yes, we can read the Bible well in some sense without knowing genre, but even at, at a very practical pastoral level, genre really does matter. You've spent the most time thinking and writing in the area of the gospel, specifically Matthew. So what genre are we looking at when we're looking at the New Testament and gospels? And how do we know? Yeah, it's good. You know, there's been debate and there have been different opinions throughout time, but probably starting back in the 90s, 80s or 90s, there was some discussion of the idea of the Gospels as biographies, but it's been especially in the last maybe 10 years or so that that has become the dominant view among most Gospel scholars. Not everyone, there's always going to be minority reports, but most Gospel scholars today would recognize that the closest genre we have in other literature that we could compare to our Gospels would be a 
a Greek or Roman biography, and the word we usually call it is a bios, or the plural would be bioe, or we can just say biography, recognizing that what an ancient biography look like isn't identical to what we might think of a biography, but there's also some similarities as well. So how would you know that they are like ancient biographies? Well, the person who's done the most work on this is a guy called Richard Burridge, a British scholar. And how he argues it, and I think very persuasively for most of us, is that he did a massive comparative literature. Like he looked at other biographies that were written before and after the same time period in Greek and Latin and did some pretty interesting analysis of the kind of things that those pieces of literature do. For example, how much of each of the biographies that are written, how much of the space is given to the main character, how much is given to other characters. There's all these kind of stats you can do. And when you do the statistical analysis of what this genre that we do know were biographies in the ancient world that they wrote about famous people. When you do the analysis of how they work, and then you go to the Gospels and do the same kind of analysis, this is what Burridge does. It turns out there's quite a bit of overlap. In other words, it's not just a kind of a hunch or something. There's something you can argue kind of on a literary statistical standpoint of why they look so much alike. Okay. So were works in the bios genre, were they always nonfiction? Or were there also some that were fictional, that were biographies, so to speak, but were fictionalized. Yeah. And I think you probably, you know, you and I see each other at coffee shops and talk about these things a lot, but you've probably read as much or more than I have even on this issue on the non-canonical gospel biographies. But I think there was a wide range probably of how biographies functioned. Some of them were meant to just be, we might call hagiography almost, is kind of a term we use later where they just overly praise a person for being so perfect, et cetera. Like at a, sometimes we might do this at a eulogy at a funeral or something like that. And there were probably some of those that were pretty fantasticalized, if I can make up a word. But we also know that people weren't dumb in the ancient world and they could recognize when things were maybe overwrought in their praise. But the reason you write a biography is usually about an historical person. And while you'll probably want to put the best foot forward for them, that doesn't mean they're not true or not representative of who the person is. So I, w I don't think we you know, should assume that just because it's a stylized biography that's very positive about a person that therefore it's not accurate or true in that sense. I think one of the important things in that is that somebody can use a particular style of writing without taking everything about that. So just because we've got some fictionalized biographies, such as the Sertiman of Hesiod and Homer, the romance of Alexander, the romance of Aesop, these very fictionalized, just because those are fictionalized doesn't mean that everything about them transfers over to the New Testament Gospels, right. as that genre is not a determinative category, as we've talked about, right. but rather it's one that we observe. It's right. descriptive, not prescriptive in that. And I think it's important for us to recognize that, because I sometimes run across atheists who are like, okay, there are these other fictional biographies. The Gospels are the biographies, therefore the Gospels right, are fictional, right. which is all sorts of logical leaps exactly. right there at that point. It's a non sequitur big time. Exactly. Yeah. It's, 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 just right. a, it's a terrible argument, but it's important for us to be able to respond to that, to consider that, and to know that there was a range of biographies. There was all the way over from Suetonius and Plutarch, all the way over to these more popular biographies yeah, as think, well. There's a range. In I think there. that's good, and especially in light of what we also know about Christians' goals and what, they, what their self-understanding was. I mean, no Christian in the 
first many centuries or really any century thought, you know, this may not be true, but man, it's a great story and I'm willing to die for it and lose my social status, et cetera. You know, I mean, there's nothing like that. Christians clearly understood these things were a matter of life and death for them. And so they have a goal of representing Jesus as true to history. I mean, we can go to other parts of the New Testament, like Paul in 1 Corinthians says, if these things aren't true, then we're the most pitied among people, because it's not like this is doing us any good in this life, Mm -hmm. right? And so even if there are other biographies that are totally fictionalized, Christians didn't mean by biography that for sure. I have a question actually to pose to both of you all, first Dr. Pennington and and then... To you, Timothy, suppose someone is listening to this program and they they have a friend who is one of these skeptics who who would make this equation between here are fictional biographies and here are the Gospels and therefore, and so they reject the truth of the Gospels. What should or what, what can a Christian do to help a skeptic see the truth of the Gospels? I mean, I would just say mostly, I can't fight this feeling anymore. (laughs) That would seem to probably do it. Probably do it. Yeah, I mean, I think this gets to a really important issue of all of apologetics. And for my take, you know, I'm the outsider here, but for my take, apologetics is valuable in helping us understand the truth and the trustworthiness of our faith from within. I think our main goal when speaking with non-believers is to testify to Yes, the truthfulness of Holy Scripture and Christian truth, but that's not something we can prove to anybody. Instead, it's to testify to the reality of God's work in our lives, the reality of the beauty and goodness of who God is, and to invite people to come and see. I always think of John chapter 1 and John, you know, the the apex of the gospel tradition. It's very interesting how John, who's a very apologetic gospel writer. I mean, he's very conscious that he's written these things so that you might believe, and then by believing, have eternal life. And I think the invitation at the beginning of John is, come and see. All right, that's really the apologetics of the gospel of John. Come and see the person who's told me all that I didn't even know about myself, and who is the greatest one in the history of Israel, and has done all these miraculous things. I think that's the invitation of apologetics. Come and see Come to church with me. Come get involved in my life. Let let me be involved in your life, and let me tell you how God is at work and the testimony that I can give to that. And I I think that relates to something maybe we'll want to talk about, too, is the idea of testimony in the Gospels, which is an important idea as well. But I would say add to that in the same kind of vein of come and see is, in fact, to say to somebody, will you read the Gospel with me? Many of the times, people will claim that I reject what's in the Gospels, but they've never read the Gospels. Sit down and read the Gospel according to Mark. And let's ask questions about it and and see what you think. talk about it. See what you think. Because to me, Mark is particularly the one that breathes with the most authenticity. (laughs) There's something about Mark in particular. It's very throat punchy. It's it's just right there. It's just right. right there. And it's hard for me to think that what I read in Mark is something that somebody has just fabricated. It mm-hmm. just it doesn't even make sense to read it that way, the way that this gospel is put together in such this immediately, 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 then he did this, then he did this, and so unadorned in its language. And I would encourage somebody, read the gospel with me and let's talk about it. You know, the last 10 years have... I've spent a lot of time in the Sermon on the Mount, so it's hard not to think immediately of several times where the Sermon on the Mount has really come back to me 
and seeing the way that Jesus invites us all into seeing the world in a certain way and being in the world in a certain way and to follow him. It's all throughout all the Gospels, but for me, the Sermon on the Mount regularly comes to mind to say, you know, Jesus saying, come and listen to the wisdom I'm giving you. And when I've sought to do that, and often in moments of conviction, I haven't been doing that. I often find God to meet with me very clearly, and my faith is it leaps up again with joy that I get to follow Jesus, who is so wise and so beautiful, and and forgives me as well. So now is the moment in our program when we pull out the Infinity Gauntlet. And as we always remind you, this is the very gauntlet which Thanos himself wore when he snapped his finger and wiped out half of humanity. We know it because it makes the sounds. This could not be something we picked up for $19.99 at Target because this one (laughs) makes the sounds. And so the question that Garrick has bravely drawn forth from the Infinity Gauntlet this week is... It's a tough one. Which one is better and why? Wakanda or Hogwarts? Ooh. Am I supposed to answer this? Really? Anyone can jump in? I'll jump in. I mean, I know. I mean, yeah, it's nice to have a shield over everything, but come on, Hogwarts? That's like every person's dream. I would totally I live at Hogwarts and the and the whole world that that creates and be. So for me, there's no question in my mind about which it's, I'd rather have be. It real. is. It would, it would be hard to choose anything over kind of the fantasy of a school of magicians and whatnot. Absolutely. But the but whole I, world. I agree. Yeah. I agree. And I think that would be my final answer. But when thinking about it, it, there is this tension between this great, and this is a tension of my life, this great ancient medieval feel to castles and, you know, warfare of magicians and, and evil and all that. And and then some, you know, some pretty cool thing like, you know, suits of supreme technology that come out of a necklace and, the, you know, rings and things that fly that aren't brooms. I mean, there's some pretty cool things in Wakanda, but yeah, in the end, I would still, it'd still be Hogwarts. If I'd only seen Black Panther, I would say Wakanda, because at that point, then Wakanda seemed impregnable. Like nothing could get into Wakanda. It's how you felt watching Black Panther. True. And then Infinity War came along, and Wakanda is taken over by what? all of these evil creatures that, that come, come through there. I know. You have you not seen the movie yet? <laughs> yes, I have. <laughs> and, so, and so Wakanda falls, and it's the point at which all the bad things happen is right in Wakanda. Of course, Hogwarts falls as well. Yeah, it right? does. Right? It does so, at the end, and Wakanda, it's redeemed. Yeah, Wakanda needed Dementors. If you would have had Wakanda with Dementors <laughs> around the shield, then it would have been fine. But I guess... Yeah, they didn't have that. So, <laughs> so a crossover that will never happen, I suppose. I don't know. This one's about a draw. I, there oh, it's just, not. There is no awesome. awesome. It is for sure Hogwarts. I don't even know what you're talking about. I was just humoring oh, you. It was man. a horrible answer. <laughs> the reason I agree with Dr. Pennington is because when I think about the two worlds, both of them are, are cool, amazing, but there's only one of them that stirs for sure. something yeah magical inside me and it's not Wakanda that's like oh that's super cool I'd love all that kind of stuff but but Hogwarts I mean that's I mean I just can't fight this feeling anymore (laughs) 
Rock and roll, it's one of the greatest inventions in human history and one of the supreme expressions of common grace. The way we see it, the golden age of this invention began with the summer of love and ended with grunge. And that's why, each week, in the second half of this program, Garrick and I review one of our favorite songs and go digging for divine truth in classic rock. I'm Garrett from the 1980s. And this is Timothy from the 1970s. And the question for today is, how on earth can anyone who is not a believer in Jesus actually do anything that's good? And to look at that, we're going to look at a song that was released on March 7th of 1985 by the supergroup United Support of Artists for Africa, or USA for Africa. And this became the fastest selling pop single of all time. It topped every pop Top music chart in the world in the spring of 1985 won three Grammy Awards, and the song was We Are the World. Wait a minute, you're telling me this whole time that USA for Africa was not the USA as in the United States of America? Exactly. And I did not know that till I started researching this. It is United Support of Artists for Africa. Mind That's the name of the blown. group. <laughs> Good night. You have changed my life today. Well, the story of this song actually begins in 1984 when BBC TV did a news story on the famine in Africa. Now, this famine in Africa that ran from about... 1983 to 1985 was actually not due to climate. Many people thought that it was even at that time, but it was because of some political issues after Haile Selassie's death and a socialist dictatorship took over and restricted food supplies. There were rebellions, there were revolutions, all of these different things. And there was a drought during this time, but the drought actually wasn't the primary cause of the famine. But regardless of the reason, it devastated the nation and about 1.2 million Ethiopians died as a result of starvation. And in 1984, in Great Britain and in Ireland, several artists joined together and they developed the song, Do They Know It's Christmas, to raise money for famine relief in Africa. After they did this, Harry Belafonte wanted to do something similar with American artists, but of course, because it's American, it has to be even bigger than the what the British did. And so the biggest American artist in 1984 when he decided that he wanted to do this was Michael Jackson. So Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie were tasked with writing the song that would become We Are the World. Man, Michael Jackson was huge for 
the 1980s Garrick. Like, I had a friend down the street who always had much better stuff, and, and he always got the things that I wanted first, right? He had all the best G.I. Joes. He had the classic Nintendo system before I did. And he also had the Michael Jackson jacket from Beat It, right? I like the Thriller one better, but he had the one from Beat It, and, and I was so jealous because all I had was like a $5 terrible sequin glove. I loved Michael Jackson. I still listen to 80s Michael Jackson all the time. I have a playlist. I have a Michael Jackson playlist. Well, as we know, there are a lot of other things that Michael Jackson is known for now, but we're looking at Michael Jackson from that perspective of what people knew about him in 1984. I was actually, even when I started listening to pop music in the mid-1980s, I was never actually a fan of of Michael Jackson. Now, even though I wasn't, I admit he was a brilliant composer, and you saw in the Motown 25 special of May 1983, I think that's when people first saw, this man was not merely a composer, but he was a dancer and a performer of epic proportions. When he pulls out the fedora, the fedora like Fred Astaire's, yes. and does Billie Jean something, even for me, who I'm not a fan at all of Michael Jackson, something happened on that stage. You you still had to be mesmerized by the moonwalk, right? You can't help it. Looking back at it from the perspective now, he was really the one who broke the color barrier on MTV. I mean, it was the thriller music videos that broke the color barrier on MTV, and African-American artists really began to be able to have their videos played on MTV. Now, there's one other thing with Michael Jackson that I do love, and that is the guitar solo on Beat It, in which Eddie Van Halen, without being named anywhere on the album, and for years it wasn't even known that Eddie Van Halen played the guitar solo on Beat It. And not only that, this is the most epic and amazing part of that. The monitor in the studio, the monitor speaker caught fire while Eddie Van Halen was playing the solo. That is the solo to end all solos yes. when a speaker catches on fire during the recording of that particular That's guitar right. solo. So that is a part, it's not Michael yeah, Jackson actually, no. but it's in a song of Michael Jackson's and it is truly amazing. And these are the life-changing facts that we are committed to bring in you, our audience. So Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie wrote We Are the World in the midst of what we all know to be the greatest decade in American history. It was recorded, produced by Quincy Jones, and it just has this amazing lineup, the who's who of 1980s music, which is my first memory of this. This is what, what I always think of as the cast of faces, right? In verse one, you have Stevie Wonder and 
Kenny Rogers, Tina Turner, Billy Joel, one of my personal favorites, and and Michael Jackson. And then we get into verse two, and the hits keep on coming. Willie Nelson, The Boss, Bruce Springsteen, Kenny Loggins, the Highway to the Danger Zone. I mean, the epitome of 1980s fantastic soundtracks. And of course, one of our personal favorites who we've talked about in the past, our very own Steve. Perry, and then we get to the bridge, and suddenly you have you have Huey Lewis and Cindy Lauper, who actually is my least favorite appearance on this particular song, even though I love a lot of her other stuff. In our last chorus, we have Bob Dylan, Ray Charles, Stevie Wonder, right? These iconic figures of of music in general, not just the 80s, just in general. It's unbelievable. It is like Avengers Assemble, except yes. for 1980s music. Yeah, it's kind of like if, if all Marvel and DC superheroes got together in one place to fight evil. This is what happened with We Are the World. There comes a time when we heed a certain call when the world must come together as one when this song came out, I did not have MTV. In so fact, sad. I may not have even known yet that there was MTV at this point. No radios in our household played any pop or rock stations. But even I was aware of this particular song. It was on the nightly news. It was on the daytime news programs. It was everywhere. You couldn't avoid knowing about this song, even if you were completely fundamentalized to the point of being galvanized against all culture, everything popular, you could still not escape this particular song. And the the lyrics of the song begin, we are the world, we are the children, we are the ones who make a brighter day, so let's start giving. There comes a time when we heed a certain call when the world must come together as one. And I remember that particular line because of the fact that when this song was released, my family was attending a fundamentalist church in Springfield, Missouri, Grace Independent Bible Baptist Church, which is so many names. Interesting, yes. And and there wasn't much grace there that I remember, but that was the name of the church nonetheless. And when this song was released, I remember some sermons being preached in which it was seen to be a sign of the coming of a one world government. That line right there of there comes a time when the world must come together as one. This was the one world government, the coming of the Antichrist, anything that brought anybody together from different nations, different colors was always a sign of the one world government and the coming of the Antichrist. And the sequin glove would be the mark of the beast, obviously. If they had ever seen that sequin glove, it would have been the mark of something, I'm sure, (laughs) at that point. The other thing I remember from that particular era, though, that intersected with my memory of this song was I do remember a missionary from Africa in our church. And of course, on the news all the time at this time was about the famine in Africa, 1983 to 1985. And somebody asked this missionary, is there anything you all are doing to help with the famine and to help feed people? And I remember that he said, no, we're not there to feed people. We're there to tell them about Jesus so that they're saved when they die. And in that moment, it just occurred to me something is wrong with this. At that point, I couldn't articulate it. I didn't know what was wrong with that. But it shook me and it started some doubts in my mind because I recognized there is something wrong with that. There's something wrong with a gospel that doesn't have any implications for mercy and justice. And that really 
changed a lot of things over time in my life. It put me on a trajectory that has ended me up in many ways where I am right now today in that of, of hearing somebody say that at the same time of the popularity of this song and not being able to reconcile how is it that you're saying you don't want to feed these people, but at the same time, these people who are pagan unbelievers, they're saying that they do and there's something wrong with that. I'm still struck by, and I, and I was back then, of of how much enjoyment I saw these musicians taking in this project. And it strikes me is that even this, this cast of famous characters understood how unique and what an amazing event this was to gather all these folks in this room doing this song together. Yeah, this song really marks a transition in the history of rock and roll. This one combined with Do They Know It's Christmas that was done across the Atlantic the year before. By the 1970s and 1980s, though, most of the protest element of rock and roll is gone. Some rock was artistic, but most rock and roll in the late 70s and into the 80s was either nostalgic or it was all about sex and parties. But this song was something different. It was something different. There's a transition here in the history of rock and roll. One of the biographers of Bruce Springsteen said this about We Are the World. He said, it wasn't a rock record. It was not a critique of the political policies that created the famine or a way of finding out how and why famines occur. It was just an all-inclusive representation of the entire spectrum of post-Presley popular music. Now, he's being negative toward it at that point, but even he is recognizing recognizing that there is something distinct and different about We Are the World. It's not about parties. It's not about protest even. It was about trying to do something good for people on the other side of the world. And few, if any, of these artists were Christians. Michael Armardian was one of the producers of the song, and he was a Christian artist and worked with Christian artists. But these are not Christians, by and large. And yet they're trying to do something good, which raises a question for us as Christians. We know as Christians that a Apart from Jesus, every one of us is dead in sin. Ephesians chapter 2. We know that Romans chapter 7, in our flesh, there exists no good thing, that there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans chapter 3 and verse 10, that everything we do is infected by sin. And so how on earth can people who are non-believers do anything that is truly good, as it seems like as we look at this, we are the world, it seems like they are. So the question that we started this discussion with was, can unbelievers do good? And if your answer is yes, then how? Especially in light of what you just said. Well, I think what Calvin says, he's quoting Augustine at this point, is actually somewhat helpful. He says that those that are, that are doing good, that are unbelievers, what they do, though it seems good in its doing, yet by its perverse intention is sin. And here's what he's saying by that. He's admitting that non-believers, people who have rejected Christ, do real good in some sense. They do good actions at least. And yet there is always something perverse in its intention. There's always something perverse in its intention. There is some aspect of it that is not pure and true good because it is mingled with motives, with reasons that are actually in rebellion against 
God. Now, let's face it, that's true most of the time in some sense for us as believers in Jesus Christ. In fact, I would contend not just most of the time, but all of the time. Our good deeds actually are mingled with sin to the point that none of us does pure good. Not one of us does pure good, even as believers in Christ. And what that should do is drive us to our deep need for Jesus. The other thing we see in this, and we're reminded of in this, is that anything that is good or that seems good even, that an unbeliever does, is somehow borrowed from God's goodness. That's something that they may even deny the existence of God, but they're having to borrow from God's truth and God's goodness to do their good. Bono says on the Octoon Baby album, he says, every artist is a cannibal, every poet is a thief, all kill their inspiration and sing about their dream. And as I think about that, I think that in terms of good things we do, we're all cannibals and thieves, whether we're believers or not, because you can't do anything good without borrowing, cannibalizing, stealing from a worldview that places God at the center. There is nothing good we can do without borrowing from the truth that is with God. Yeah, and at the same time, the fact does remain that God's creation was not utterly destroyed and wiped out with the advent of sin. Changed, corrupted, marred, broken, all of those are true and ought to be recognized by us, but not destroyed. That good does continue because creation continues, and creation is rooted and has both its origin and is being sustained by our triune God. And all things, all of creation no matter how broken, are still connected to that God. Bavink, Herman Bavink, my favorite theologian, this is the center of his theology, that all things are organically connected to their triune creator. And so his emphasis, and he's very much, I mean, Calvin is his hero. So Calvin and Augustine, he would agree with all they say. And at the same time, he he wants to remind his readers that that everything after the fall, there are things that are still good, and everything that after the fall is still good, even in sinful humans, in all areas of life, is the fruit of God's common grace. And so it's hard for us to see at times, but it still exists. In so much as we are still humans after the fall, we are still created in God's image and likeness. And the truths that they, I think they steal here from the things of God, the truths that they, they pull into the song that make it work, that are actually divine in their origin, even though they're being distorted at some level, misused at some level, have to do with the value of every human being mm-hmm. and our responsibility as human beings for one another. With this idea of the image of God, that was something that was characteristic of the Jewish people because that was part of their scriptures. But what happens with the advent of Christianity is that this idea of the image of God extends beyond the Jewish people, extends beyond the people who worship the God of Israel and people from all different nations and all different people groups, they begin to believe in light of what they read in the scriptures and in light of what is taught in the Old Testament that every human being is made in God's image. And that has had a profound effect 
on Western culture, upon the world, the entire concept that every human being is created in God's image. I think of a book by a man named Odd M. Backey. That's actually the guy's name. His first name is Odd, literally. But he's written a book called When Children Became People, and he points out that it is precisely the truths of Christianity that have changed Western culture in such a way that we even perceive children as human beings. That is to say, prior to the advent of Christianity, children were not viewed as human beings with actual value and rights in the same way that we view them as Christians today and even in the world as a whole today. In other words, Christianity has shaped that perspective in the world itself of children having value and rights. Other things that this song borrows from a Christian worldview have to do with our responsibility to seek equity and justice and mercy for those who have less. I think of Luke chapter 3 and verse 11 where John the Baptist says, "'Whoever has two cloaks must share with those that have none.'" Whoever has food must share with those who have none. This idea that we have a responsibility that we are to care for those that have less than us. We also have in this song some hints of longings that are satisfied only Mm. in Jesus. There is in the song a longing for a worldwide unity of people from every tribe and language and nation. And even though as a child that was turned into a sign of a one-world government for me as a child and of the coming of the Antichrist, and even though in our world today, yes, that is misused, that is distorted, that is perverted in our world today, and into this idea in the words of the song, we're all part of God's great big family. The truth is that that longing is there in every Mm. human heart because we want what God has promised in Christ, which is to bring together people from every tribe, every language, every nation into one. The problem is that that's only true in Christ. That's only possible in Christ. Yeah. Somewhere we'll soon make a change. We all are part of God's great big family and the truth. You know, love is all we need. Can we talk about this line? Uh, the line where the musicians say, There's a choice we're making. We're saving our own lives. What are, what are they what are they talking about here? I'm really not sure what they're talking about there. We're saving our own lives. I don't think they're talking about their eternal destiny right. or eternal salvation. I do think there's a sense in which there is some sense of self-justification there. We see the hints of what Luther said at one point where he said, after the fall, humanity can conceive of no other way to be justified apart from works of the law. This idea that we can justify our existence, we can justify our art, we can justify whatever it may be by means of our own good works. There is also with this song one almost hilariously bad recollection or usage of scripture. There's a couple of lines in the song that say, as God has shown us by turning stones into bread, so we all must lend a helping hand. That turning the stones into bread wasn't something God did. (laughs) It was something Jesus was tempted to do by the devil for his own benefit. (laughs) So that one really doesn't quite work the way they wanted it to. We missed that. 
that one. <laughs> we missed that one. <laughs> so what were the, again, I was, you know, I was seven. What were the long-term results of the USA for Africa and this, specifically this song? And was this a sustained effort? Did, it, did this go anywhere? It actually sort of did go somewhere, and, and it, it accomplished its goal. I think they set a goal for something like $50 million to be earned by means of this, and it earned somewhere around $63 million. And early on, much of what it raised was used for food aid, some of which was probably misused in the context of Ethiopia at that time. But in the long term, there were around 70 recovery and development projects that happened not just in Ethiopia, but also in at least a half dozen other nations around Ethiopia. And so there were some actual real benefits for the long term for Africa as a result of the 60-some million dollars that were raised through the sales of this particular song. And But one of the things we do see in this that I think is, is something that people have critiqued, and rightly so, is that here in this song, and if we're honest, often in the church, it's help from a distance without authentic sacrifice. I think of what, regarding this song, critically of this song, a professor and activist named Rebe Garofalo said, he said this, he said, they are proclaiming their own salvation for singing about an issue they will never experience on behalf of a people most of them will never encounter. Mm. And I think that's just as characteristic sometimes of us in the church, of us wanting to throw money at things, go on short-term mission trips where we barely touch and then we run away back to our own safe enclaves. And what we have a need for is gritty discipleship. Yeah. We've seen that type of aid from the church, at least, a backlash in the last decade or so against that and works being written against that and pointing towards this gritty discipleship that you mentioned. Right. This book, When Helping Hurts, was a really important book in this regard that is very important. Everybody ought to read that book, When Helping Hurts. But what God has called us to is discipleship that is long-term, grounded in a particular place, is costly and gritty discipleship. That's what we are actually called to, and we're called to that because that's what Jesus did for us. He didn't stand at a distance and, and send us good stuff. And what Jesus did that really dealt with sin, that dealt with our brokenness, that dealt with our sorrow— was he actually entered into our world. He was incarnate as a human being. He suffered. He immersed his life in our context. And in the same way, we're called to immerse our lives in the lives of broken people, immerse our lives in particular places and seeking to do good and seeking God's justice in the places where we actually are, not standing back in a distance in our safe studio or a safe church and doing something just to raise money and help people with good intentions. But we are called to do something that is a lot more difficult and a lot less glamorous of actually entering into the suffering of people, entering into the, the rhythms and the brokenness and the beauty of particular neighborhoods and places and to proclaim the gospel there and to proclaim a gospel that has implications for our practices of justice in those places.
Thank you for joining us today. If you want to connect with the two of us, check out threechordsapologetics.com. That's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. If you're interested in choosing one of the songs we review in the future or in picking up Three Chords and the Truth merchandise, go to patreon.com slash threechordsandthetruth. My name is Timothy Paul Jones, and I'm already looking forward to joining you next time on Three Chords and the Truth. Go there.